Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is Watchman Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli security, diplomatic intelligence, and policy experts and practitioners. And our guest today has experience in all of the domains uh, mentioned in the military, in Shabak, with Mossad, and with the foreign ministry, where he served as the consul general in Hong Kong and then as Director General. Ambassador Reuven Merchav, welcome. Welcome, good afternoon. Just um, uh, to sum it all up, because uh, we will shortly get to the beginning, you've been with the military in the most elite unit of the time, the um, reconnaissance company of the, of the paratroop battalion. And then uh, you were with the internal security agency, Shabak. You moved to Mossad and to the uh, uh, foreign ministry uh, via the defense ministry regarding uh, Lebanon. Are there any particular characteristics which distinguish between all of these organizations, in addition to the common denominator of all working for the Israeli government? It's a very difficult question. I can only tell you that uh, from my experience, the people who are dealing with it, first of all, they have a very, very strong motivation because all of them have personal experience, family experience, historic experience, and they have, uh, they're very eager to, uh, to, to defend the country and to make it thrive and uh, to, to prevent any possible of a calamity like happened to us just 70, 80 years ago. And uh, each and every one of them had family connections to that catastrophe. And this is built into their personality. The second thing is that, uh, you know, every organization has its, uh, is, its diseases. And uh, uh, the uh, uh, fighting for an ego or competition <coughs> is not strange to these organizations. And the question is how you keep the balance between the pure motive of uh, trying to defend your country and work for it and fighting your personal ego, uh, which uh, sometimes is a very negative factor. Uh, if you add to all of that, that we live in one of the most complicated zones of the world where various cultures meet and sometimes, and in most cases, meet in uh, unsympathetic conditions, uh, collisions. Uh, the most important thing for intelligence people is to try to understand the other, to try to get to the roots of his culture and try to combine 
R and R, I call it recognition and respect. Because if you don't respect your enemy or your adversary, you cannot work with him. You cannot work against him. You cannot work for him. You cannot work against him, with him. And for that, you need, first of all, you need a lot of patience and you need to learn a lot because the history of our area is very complicated. You have three main religions which emerged from this area. You have a very, very diversified a mosaic of history, of nations, of conquests, of civilizations meeting, especially in the western part of Asia where we came about and where we try to live somehow in dignity with our neighbors. And uh, uh, to create the common denominators is extremely difficult. If you do it from the point of uh, view of arrogance, and uh, f f feelings of superiority, you, you will reach nowhere. And it can also uh, lead to complacency, which is what happened to Israel in 1973. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. And you know, the, uh, since in Israel, the, the IDF and all the security organizations usually have such prestige, people tend to believe them and people believe to follow them and governments tend to, to accept what they say as if it was given in Sinai. And the question is how to create the balance between a, a simple uh, benevolent understanding and, uh, and regulating these organizations to, to continue serving as, as, uh, as servants, as civil servants, and not as bosses. You recently published your uh, memoirs, um, and uh, when you uh, speak about the homecoming from East Africa, uh, essentially in mid-career, uh, a year or so uh, before the Yom Kippur War, you speak about the change which has undertaken Israel um, as regards what happened until 1967 and the country you found uh, five years later. But let's go back to your own personal history because you do mention uh, the Holocaust, uh, what uh, happened to Jews uh, in Europe, and uh, how is your personal and family history intertwined with that? It is a part and parcel of it. And if I think under which conditions my father became, my late father became a Zionist, he was a, a, a fervent German patriot for the Kaiser. And uh, when, uh, when the First World War started, he volunteered at the age of 17 and a half to the, uh, to the army and found himself within a year and a half fighting against the Russians. Uh, in Russia, in what's today called the Ukraine, and uh, trying to defend the, uh, the German interests. And uh, if you think of it, that out of 600,000 uh, German Jews, 100,000 served in the army and 10,000 uh, were killed already in 1917, 1918, you can see the depth of the intimate uh, patriotism which was the main flavor of German Jewry. And if you think of a person, personality like Martin Buber, the well-known philosopher, who when the, when the war started, 
issued a great, uh, uh, a very important uh, uh, letter to the Jewish people, go and fight for your German uh, uh, motherland, you can understand how deep all these things were imbued. Now, what happened later, that in, 19, uh, in 1916, there was a German marshal by the name of Ludendorff. He was a great anti-Semite. Later on, about 10 years later, he supported Hitler and the Munich coup. And uh, uh, Ludendorff uh, was an anti-Semite. And he said, the Jews, they just make money. They don't go to the army. And then he started the Jewish census. Uh, uh, to try and to <laughs> to see how many Jews, which was stopped when they saw that uh, yeah. indeed many Jews uh, did enlist. Yeah, they they stopped it after a year. They saw that it was uh, <laughs> it was ridiculous. So it was quite a shock for your family, for your ancestors, um, when Hitler came to power, and they had uh, not only to change their entire view of the country, but to decide whether to stay or uh, take the first opportunity to go away, preferably to Palestine? Uh, yeah, well, it was a bit more complicated. But first of all, uh, if uh, until uh, the First World War, there were 2,000 Jews in the German-Jewish Zionist movement. After the war, there were immediately 20,000. And it became a very st strong factor in, in, in the German Jewry. But we, ha we have to, to jump along to Haifa and uh, your origins. No, so what then happened, the, uh, the British in the beginning of the, of the 30s published the White Book, limiting immigra Jewish immigration to Palestine, 1,500 uh, a, a month and uh, a year. And, uh, but at the same time, they issued a decree which said that every Jew who would come with 1,000 pounds sterling uh, would be admitted to Palestine, uh, bearing in mind that with 1,000 pounds sterling, which is equivalent to 100,000 euro of today, uh, he could start a business, start working. And my father, who was a young doctor, he, was, he had the practice and he worked in, in the industrial zones of uh, Western Germany, he didn't have much money. So he borrowed the money from a relative who was later himself killed in the Holocaust. And this is how our family was saved. And more than half of our family couldn't get out couldn't get out because they didn't get the certificates and many of them didn't get out even when they had the chance to do so because they thought, why should we go to this desert? when we have so, so the rich or the relatively rich could have bought their liberty and indeed their lives. Yeah. Many, okay, so, many thousands did so, yeah. So you were born uh, in Haifa um, in the mid-30s, not to be too precise about it. Um, and there was uh, a so-called Yeke community, Jews who came from Germany, in uh, Haifa and its environs, the various Krayot, Kriyat Bialy, Kriyat Motzkin, and so on. And a few years ago, you uh, participated in a unique gathering of uh, former uh, German Jews or their... Uh, families who took part in the intelligence um, community. And apparently there was a, a unique characteristic to uh, so-called Yekebond uh, people. What was that? 
first of all, that's, that's very, very correct and very true. But before that, we must see what was the general contribution of the Yekis to... 90,000 of them came uh, to Palestine in these decisive years, and they brought with them medicine, they brought jurisdiction, they brought economy, they brought building, they brought all the, f the faculties of a modern society. And the impact on, on Israel until this day is immeasurable. But some of them had to make a living in manual labor and uh, yeah. in, in vocations which were uh, below their educational... Uh, But they were patient and very slowly they, they built themselves. And uh, I had a few relatives like, like them. I had a, a, an uncle who was a building engineer of the first class. And for a few months, he worked as a laborer in, on a building site. But the, they, they, they were very hardworking people, very industrious people. And this uh, uh, was true to all their professions. Now, since they were open-minded and very educated and uh, spoke languages, They were, uh, it was very easy to try and to recruit them for, for intelligence uh, purposes. By the British? By the British and by the Jews. And uh, the, the British uh, uh, recruited many of them to, do, to work against the Germans. And the Israeli uh, underground, all, all, uh, all of them, recruited uh, some Yekes. There was a very famous... A German platoon in the Palmach, in the most uh, important uh, unit of the Haganah, of the self-defense. And they were trained to be, uh, to impose as Germans and to work in Germany in cases of trouble. And uh, you have many examples like that, apart from breaking codes and doing all things that uh, people do and the, the, the The, uh, their contribution to the Jewish survival and to the Jewish defense is incredible. But in addition to that, um, it's interesting to note that many of German-Jewish German origin uh, wanted to study the Orient and become proficient in Oriental studies. And apparently uh, you were also taken in uh, even uh, at school by uh, this direction? It's, it's true because the, uh, uh, the, the tendency for Germans to study the Orient was part of German uh, Orientalism, which was actually imperial because they were interested in the, in the East and they, they wanted to, uh, to combat the, the British and the French. And uh, Theodor Herzl uh, wanted Kaiser Wilhelm to help the yeah, Zionist movement. Uh, this was automatic. So um, among the, the German orientalistic tendency, there uh, was a great uh, portion of Jews who studied there. And when, uh, when, uh, when they were prohibited from working in, Jewish, uh, in, 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 in general universities in Germany, many of them tried to come to Palestine and created one of the best uh, schools for Oriental and Arabic studies in Jerusalem. And uh, some of the best brains of, of, the, of, uh, of Western Orientalism taught in, in Jerusalem. But I was lucky to learn Arabic because I, I was educated in a very liberal school in Haifa. And the, uh, the headmaster of that school decided that he wants to uh, 
uh, to accentuate Arabic studies. And I had an uh, Arab uh, uh, teacher for Arabic who was an immigrant from Syria. Uh, he was a brilliant man. And he taught us Arabic in a very modern way by, by uh, uh, reading and translating as excerpts from, from the papers. And these were the years of the creation of the Arab League and of the uh, remodeling of the Middle East. And so I grew up when I uh, reading of text, Justin said, he, he went and he came home and he did so and he did that. He said, this minister went to Beirut and this one came to Baghdad and this dynasty was ruling now the, the Hashemite kingdom. So I grew up with some knowledge of, of the Middle East. And also, also Haifa uh, at the time, also later, was uh, a very mixed community of Arabs, Jews, British, and uh, the borders uh, to Lebanon and Syria were open. Your uh, next door neighbors, the Weizmanns, uh, used to go on holiday uh, to uh, some ski resorts up north. It was a different um, environment than what we know today. It was a different environment, and you must add to that the contribution of the Jews community. And I was lucky in the sense that I met the Druze community, which is a section which was created in the 11th century, uh, which is not accepted by Islam as such, but they have their own religion and tradition. And they, they are, the way of living is wherever they live, they are loyal to the state. And the leader of that community, Amin Tarif, was a patient of my father. And his uh, disciples came to our clinic once a month so I could speak to them and I could learn uh, Arabic with them. And my father used to go to Julius and to, to meet uh, Tarif, which was a great honor for all of us. So you graduated uh, high school uh, and you were earlier in a youth movement. And uh, the natural outgrowth of that was uh, to go to Nahal, which is... Uh, a part agricultural or settlement uh, unit and part military. But you found yourself in the paratroopers. How come? The, the idea was that since uh, all the units of the Nahal were people who, who were graduates of school, uh, the army said very simply, we, we don't want all of them to work on a kibbutz in agriculture. We want uh, 20 or 15% of them to become commanders. So every portion of that Nahal unit had to uh, give 15% to military uh, service. Not necessarily volunteers, what the entire group decided. Yeah, but you had to agree. I mean, it was not, was not completely compulsory. And I found myself at one of these 15%. And after I finished my uh, corporal's course in Nahal, which was a very tough one, I found my way to the interesting thing because at that time we had terrible incidents of infiltrators coming from, from Jordan and uh, shooting on buses and we had some terrible, one terrible uh, example in March of 54 uh, uh, after which the Nacha decided to create a, a patrol system to patrol the, to safeguard the road to Elat to the south. And uh, I was uh, stationed there, and uh, 
After a while, Arik Sharon, who was a very ambitious uh, young major, came to Moshe Dayan and said, I want the jeeps of that unit. So he said, you can take the whole unit. So I found myself in the paratroopers. But on, on a lighter note, just for a second, uh, when you were in boot camp and corporal's course, um, one of your uh, buddies was Chaim Topol, later um, well-known uh, as an actor and painter, too. This is a <laughs> part of the Israeli Uh, tradition, because at that time they said that no one can reach the <laughs> the, the the artistic part of the of the nachal, the troop, the, the troop, uh, if it does not complete the sergeant's course. So Chaim Topol found himself seven months uh, working very hard <laughs> to become a, a corporal, and then he <laughs> only then he got permission to join the group. But anyway, Sharon got his way, as he usually did, and he brought all the jeeps and, uh, with all of us to, to, the, uh, to the paratroopers' base, and then we were told that this is a volunteer's uh, unit, and if we don't want to, uh, to jump, we can go back to the Nahar. So I said, I, I want to stay since I'm here, and I was disqualified because of my, my, my short sight. And, uh, but I was lucky because my, my elder brother, who was then already a, 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 a lieutenant, and he was a member of the elite unit of Arik Sharon, he came to the doctor. Uh, he said, I, don't, I cannot take Merhav because of his glasses. So he went to the deputy commander and he wrote a small note. Doctor, now you accept, uh, you admit uh, Merhav Jr. And this is how I landed at the paratrooper. So at that time you were known as uh, Shmulik's junior brother. In Hebrew it's called Merhav Akatan, the small yeah. Merhav. And uh, this is how I started a very adventurous uh, stint of a year and a half. And I took part in some of the most uh, thrilling Uh, operations across the border, and after that I returned to my kibbutz for one year. But before you return to your kibbutz, um, we always remember the famous title of uh, Dean Acheson's memoirs, Present at the Creation. Now, in 1954-55, it wasn't the creation of the IDF. This happened earlier, of course, but it was the recreation under Ben-Gurion, Dayan, Sharon, especially this particular battalion, and within it, your particular company led by the legendary Meir Hatzion. Oh, sure. And, and uh, you had uh, one terrifying experience, which uh, if uh, you can recount for us, please do, regarding what happened when you assaulted a Syrian outpost. No, it's uh, very difficult to speak about it. It sounds like bragging, and it's not my way. It is a very uh, usual experience for people who serve in the front. Uh, we had to, uh, to, to take over a, a Syrian uh, bastion, which was controlling the Lake of, of the Galilee, and from which uh, fishermen were shot all the time. And we uh, had to, to take it. And when we got there, uh, we, we encountered uh, very heavy fire, and I was almost killed, and uh, my commander uh, uh, saved me. 
in this, uh, you remember, you remain with these uh, experiences. But uh, th this was a night action, and uh, you were entangled in a in the wire fence. Yeah, but th this is usual. I mean, there's nothing special about it. This happened on the 11th of December, 1955, and I'll never forget it. And the, the gentleman, the, the person who saved me, half a year later, he was killed when he, uh, in, in, uh, on the Sinai front when he wanted to save his soldiers and he jumped on a hand grenade. He was killed and he saved them. And um, uh, this person, Oved Ledizhansky, was twice decorated for bravery. Yeah. The first time was when he saved you yeah. um, mere moments before a Syrian soldier was about to shoot you. Yeah, but I, I'm telling you again, this is a normal experience for ex uh, infantry soldiers. Uh, surely uh, all of our viewers have had such normal experiences um, practically every year of their uh, lives. So um, after that, um, you had um, a jump uh, accident where, where you were disqualified from uh, further serving uh, with the airborne? Yeah, up to a point. Yeah. I, I had to be operated and they fixed me. And then I went back to the, my kibbutz for one year and I worked in, uh, <laughs> I was a cowboy, and I worked in, in the fields plowing and so on. And after one year, I decided I want to study and to materialize by little experience. And I, I, I got uh, 10 Israeli pounds and uh, a few shirts and came, came to Jerusalem. So um, you also uh, had some experience uh, in minor politics as a student organizer. Um, but at that time, you had no idea that you are going to be drawn to security uh, work. I was I presided over the Israeli Union of Students, and I I was sent a few times abroad, and I found that the politics behind the student body is not for me, and I was heading for a professional career, and then I was when I almost completed my studies, the security organs in Israel they started to look for for graduates, and I was vetted by by one of them, and I found myself, and the first uh, one was the Arab section of the General Security Service, and when they offered me the job, I said uh, I refused to go there because at that time we still had a military regime. Control military administration over those parts of the country which were annexed to Israel after the 1948 war. Which were part of Israel, Nazareth and Haifa and so on. Every one of them, if you wanted to go to Jerusalem, had to have a special license. And I some, some of them uh, were won over during the 1948 war, and some of them were yeah. given over by so, King Abdallah of the Hashemite Kingdom of so, Jordan. And we will get more uh, to that in the second part of our conversation. For the time being, Ruven Merhav a yeke, a paratrooper, a cowboy, and an orientalist, you are going to join Shabak, the Israel Security Agency, in our second part. Thank you very much. So uh, this is for now uh, for Watchmen Talk, the first part of our conversation with Ambassador Reuven Merhav, and we will be back for a second part dealing with Shabak, Mossad, Foreign Ministry, Lebanon, and many other issues. For the time being, shalom.
Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.